Hello and welcome to the Psychom JC podcast, your one-stop shop for effective and impactful science communication approaches. Psychom JC is sponsored by Captive Touch, a company offering consulting and training for strategic science communication. At Psychom JC, we aim to help scientists integrate findings from the latest evidence-based research in social sciences and education into their outreach efforts. We curate, summarize, and discuss research studies and their applications to real communication contexts in a way that scientists can actually easily implement. First of all, today I'm here with my usual suspects, my co-host Sherry, Heather. Unfortunately, Maria could not join us today, but we have two very nice surprises. We have Melissa, who is our newest team member, and we have a very special guest uh, who participated also in our latest Twitter chat last Tuesday, David. So how about first uh, everyone says hi. 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 (laughs) And then... Uh, let's hear first from uh, Melissa, since you're new and since you're the one who hosted our last <laughs> chat. Who are you, Melissa? Um, I'll, try to, I'll try to be brief. Um, so hi, everyone. Um, I'm Melissa. Um, my background is mainly in cultural anthropology, um, and I will be uh, going to graduate school in the near future for archaeology. And um, along the way, I've become increasingly more interested um, and obsessed with uh, pseudoscience and pseudoarchaeology, which is what brought me to the journal article I discussed on Tuesday, and um, also how um, I found our wonderful guest today, uh, Dr. David S. Anderson, who is an archaeologist focused on uh, Mesoamerica, um, an instructor at Radford University, and is the go-to psychomer uh, for, <laughs> for pseudoscience on Twitter. Um, so, David, would you like to uh, introduce yourself at all? Sure, absolutely. So, yes, I am Dr. David Anderson. Um, my traditional research specialty is as an archaeologist. I have focused on studying the pre-classic Maya, so so the earlier developments of uh, ancient Maya society. I have developed sort of an absolute fascination and interest in discussing debating uh, pseudo-archaeological claims, things like Atlantis, ancient aliens, and all of these claims about the ancient world that don't actually engage with archaeological method. uh, And in essence, what we should do about this. A lot of my colleagues for a very long time have sort of more or less suggested, uh, just that's the fringe, you should ignore that, it's not important. Uh, But we're facing rising rates of belief, and I think that it's increasingly important that these are topics we do discuss. So, yeah, indeed, why we have David today and what Melissa did last Tuesday in the Twitter chat uh, was, as usual, review uh, uh, an article of interest that she selected, and that was generally um, focused on fighting pseudoscience. And the specifics were more Indiana Jonesy, if I could <laughs> use that term. So, uh, Melissa, do you want to give us a brief overview of the actual topic of the real article that people uh, talked about on Tuesday? Absolutely. The um, so the article, um, for, for anybody who didn't get the title, is uh, Sin- Cinema, Supernatural Archaeology, and the Hidden Human Past um, by uh, Dr. Uh, Peter Hiscock. Um, and so the main topic of this article explore is, is the, it's, it explores the portrayal of archaeology and archaeologists in film. 
And so the author chooses uh, not to engage in the ongoing battle between academic archaeologists and what he calls alternative archaeologists, um, and uh, you know what we usually call ancient alien, ancient astronaut theorists. Um, but rather, he he wants to focus on how these topics like ancient aliens, hidden history, uh, government cover-ups are subjects that are heavily argued when presented through books and articles, but not when they are presented through cinematic films. And this is a trend that has been popular since the infancy of cinema uh, and continues to be popular. And his goal is to acknowledge and draw attention to the impact these films have on the public understanding of what archaeology is. It's a really cool topic indeed. And I have to admit that as an X-File fan and as Indiana Jones fan, I really, really like the alien uh, storyline. But I can see how for people who do not necessarily have the information necessary to distinguish fiction from facts, mm -hmm. some very realistic representation can actually get very confusing. So, uh, Sherry, I'm going to start with you. What uh, is the thing from our Twitter chat that made the biggest impression on you? First of all, uh, it was really fun um, that our discussion led to us being able to lit a fire under the online community, archaeology community, <laughs> to become movie critics. And it came up as a suggestion that, well, maybe we should have a dedicated blog or podcast to debunk uh, what Hollywood teaches us. And actually, it turns out that there is a blog out there that does that, which Navena found. Correct, Navena? Correct. Yes, it's uh, Science versus Hollywood. And, and I'm going to include a link in our uh, show notes afterwards so people can visit it and see uh, the interesting things that are discussed there. And also, um, probably my favorite tweet was one that uh, Dr. Anderson um, tweeted. And it says, combating Sudi archaeology is like wrestling a greased pig that can jump through dimensional portals. And I've <laughs> got 15 likes. So that, that four is, um, I, I, would, I would say that's probably one of my favorite uh, quotes by you, David. <laughs> I, I, I try to do what I can. It, it is a funny thing. Is, you know, I've had people before ask me to, to debate uh, these topics with the proponents of archaeological claims. And it's one of those things that's important, it's, it's a difficult line to walk. I think it's very important for us to discuss these things. I have had wonderful, fascinating, interesting discussions with believers in these concepts. The idea of stepping up and standing on a platform and saying, I'm gonna score off with you with my knowledge versus your knowledge is really problematic because the very nature of these claims is that they ignore and sidestep thousands upon thousands of facts and they, they look at the world in a fundamentally different way than from a scientific perspective. And so, yeah, that idea of actually debating or engaging with these things, it's so fundamentally problematic because, you know, it's debates, in, in my pers perspective, especially for a topic like this, the debate does not prove who is right or wrong. They prove you know, who is a better wordsmith or who can rally up their base more than the other. And that, I think, does a, a disservice and a problematic disservice to the discussion of science and pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. And, and then um, you also uh, recently uh, had an article in Forbes um, when it came to, uh, and, and again, the, the article that, that I focus on, it only focuses on a few uh, cinematic examples of archaeologists. It doesn't even, it doesn't even 
cover, um, you know, what we have on television or anything like that. Um, but you wrote about uh, the the new Megan Fox show, uh, Legends of the Lost. And um, so how would, how would you relate that to, uh, you know, what we're discussing with this article today? Well, what, uh, this is a great article that Melissa picked, and I think there's so many threads of archaeology and pop culture, and certainly the ones that most people are familiar with in terms of Indiana Jones, I think it's important to note that uh, the, the Jones character was very deliberately constructed out of Pulp Fiction short stories in the 20s and 30s, when archaeologists were very popular characters in these stories as investigators of ancient mysteries. And I think that it carries through very, very explicitly into Fox's portrayal of archaeology in that show, Legends of the Lost. And this is a, a huge problem for my field in public outreach. The average person on the street thinks that my job is much more akin to a mystery detective or someone who is liable to come across sort of ancient curses and magical properties of objects. That's what they see in the pop culture. That's what they see in the films. And Legends of the Lost was steeped in this, where it looked at archaeology as a mystery. And, and the Indiana Jones films have done this very explicitly, too. Uh, there were Legends of the Lost approaches the notion that one object, if we find one new object, that that will totally rewrite the history of, our, of humankind. And that's just, it's fun. That makes a great movie. It makes a great story. But that's not the way sort of aggregate data and historical analyses work. I have a question as well. Do you think... Uh, David or anyone uh, of the ladies, if you have an opinion, do you think that so often in those movies, those single artifacts that can change basically the world as we know it are uh, oftentimes, more oftentimes related than not to uh, biblical artifacts because those movies are actually coming from the Western world or is it something else behind that? Hiscock certainly shows out that those objects, especially in the cinematic universe, are almost always spiritual or religious or paranormal. I think, I think they're often biblical, mostly because that's what Western audiences are more comfortable with and will hook on to, less than that they're trying to make a, a biblical statement, if you will. Well, and I would say, um, you know, and just because because you know the audience and especially for Indiana Jones the audience at the time was mainly a western audience and so they um they focused a lot on uh these even mythical or biblical items that you know the public would most likely already be familiar with or it would be uh easy for them to find more information about it at the time um and then if you look at some of the the more recent films, um, they're more in far off countries or in uh, in Asian cultures and and um, uh, Latin America. It's it is interesting too, but it's always through a Western lens that we see these things. So it's it's always mysterious. It's always uh, mythical, or they they say I thought that was a myth or something like that. Um, and it's very interesting to see how that that has become such a, a, a popular trope in, in archaeology films. <laughs> and I, I think the final Crystal, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull movie is a great example of what Melissa is saying, where you have something that looks foreign and is presented as something that is from Latin America mm -hmm. or ancient Mesoamerica. And yet the reality of the legends of the Crystal Skulls is they're entirely modern and entirely Western in mm -hmm. origin. 
And so it blends the best of both worlds for a movie audience. You have something that looks foreign, but feels familiar and feel, fits that world that you already yeah. know. Well, and, and another thing um, to, to still talk about Indiana Jones is, uh, you know, because the first three films, these were, you know, uh, Middle Eastern cultures, these were, uh, you know, e e Egyptian um, but and and then we go to Latin America, and the twist is that it was all alien, and um, about how how Latin American cultures, how Latin American history. There's always this uh, this unfortunate um, uh, blanket of ancient aliens when it comes to uh, the mm -hmm. architecture, uh, the language, all of this. Um, and do you have any notes on that um, as, as you know, kind of the, the resident pseudo archeology span warrior? I, I think it's, the Americas present an interesting conundrum because I think it's important to look at all of these claims in their historical context. And uh, ancient alien viewers don't necessarily get that or see that, uh, or and other the consumers of other pseudo claims don't necessarily get to see this larger context in which they arose. And the reality is, is that when Europeans arrived uh, in the Americas, they were astonished. They didn't understand. They thought they knew the history of the world and its peoples, and they really were at a loss as how to explain two full continents that had a bunch of people in them. And so there's a lot of casting about that happens in the 1500s as they try to come to an understanding. Uh, Atlantis reemerges as a discussion point among some folks at that point in time. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of discussion that the, the Americans must have been populated by uh, lost uh, groups of Egyptians or by the lost tribes of Israel. And this confusion sort of it settles down for a bit, uh, but really reemerges in the 19th century where uh, as uh, the United States is growing and expanding, uh, American settlers are regularly encountering land ruins and buildings and structures. And as, as people uh, expand in Latin America as well, they, they have the same issue um, uh, where they're regularly encountering these large scale ruins. There's a really fascinating description of Maya cities written in the 1840s by a man named John Stevens, who was an American diplomat. And it was sort of the first reintroduction of ancient Maya cities to the Western world. And people are astounded at the size and complexity of these ruins. And they, the, the, this Western audience doesn't know what to do with them because they look at the indigenous populations through a racial, a racial and disparaging eye and generally look at them and say, oh, well, the natives must not have done this. And so we have a whole host of new legends that start to crop up in the 19th century that suggests that these buildings are too complex and they must have been built by somebody else. And so we get a lot of stories of lost races. Uh, sometimes very explicitly, they are lost white races. And that literature is quite literally what the modern ancient aliens movie movement has built itself upon. They look at these ancient sites and say, well, the people couldn't have done that. And so they invoke aliens instead. And it's really a troubling and problematic situation where, you know, I, I think your average viewer of the TV show Ancient Aliens Today doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily drawn to the show because they believe that Native Americans couldn't have built these structures. And yet that's the, the literature that they're engaging with is one that is rooted in a pejorative view of others. I think that the show itself today is perhaps not immediately pejorative to one group of people the show itself today is just pejorative against humans in general it just repeatedly is suggesting that any humans couldn't have done this 
Uh, Giorgio Tsoukalos mm. has started to push back against some of these notions as he's repeatedly dragged into debates about whether his show is racist. Mm. And uh, he's, they're regularly trying to claim, no, no, we say even you know, the Vikings or the people of Stonehenge couldn't have done these things. And it's like, ancient aliens just thinks that humans are incompetent, basically. These so it's become more inclusive uh, to, the, uh, to undermining human achievement is what you're saying. <laughs> yes, yes, they just think we're all crap. <laughs> So I have a question for you, David, and um, for, for Melissa and for everyone else here. Um, I, you know, again, I don't have a background in archaeology. Um, I find it very interesting. So I've just been listening to, to this conversation and I'm like super, you know, engaged and like, wow, I really need to learn more about this because this is fascinating. But these are dynamics, though, that I, I feel like some of these things, you know, we sort of see some similar dynamics like in the political space. Um, with the issue of, of course, alternative facts, where we have moved away from having core information sources where people have sort of like a baseline set of facts of, you know, on which to create their beliefs, or at least at least which to sort of, you know, ground them, um, if you will, in terms of how they see the world and, and what they're actually even, you know, perceiving and talking about. And so this sort of larger issue of it's not just alternative archaeology, it's alternative facts across the board. And we completely like ignore things that are like truly actually facts. What do you do about that? How do you sort of work around that? Because it, again, this isn't something that's just special archaeology. This is something that I think we've seen across the board with sort of the movement away from like expertise and people can just live in their own world and their own bubble and find information that supports that and not have to interact with anything that they potentially disagree with. So this whole dynamic is very relevant um, and I think it's incredibly challenging, but I guess I, my, my question is, what are your thoughts on how we might actually sort of make some steps forward in, you know, Absolutely. kind of reducing the alternative universe, you know, dynamic, <laughs> largely? Yes, absolutely. And this, I think, uh, is what's behind the comment, the, the tweet that I wrote about, you know, a, a wrestling, a greased pig that can jump through dimensional portals. This is not an argument or a fight that's about facts. It's really not, unfortunately. And I think when I first got into the world of I want to respond to some of these claims and, and work to, to counterbend some of these claims, I thought, oh, well, all I need to do is present the real facts and, and I'll be done. And I think the reality is, is and that's something we've certainly seen as, with the skeptical movement, is that debunking a claim only takes us so far. And I think it's important to debunk some of these claims and sort of lay out what are the factual errors behind them. But the reality is, is that this is a, a narrative about a variety of conspiracies. This is a narrative about worldview. This is something that I think we need to do to have deeper discussions on. And I really try to do my best to reach out and discuss and have open discussions about these issues. I have a, a recent experience where I went to a Theosophical Society conference, which is a New Age spiritual group, uh, which actively promotes some issues of Atlantis. And I think we need to do as much as possible of reaching out and talking with different groups that might not share the same worldview as we do and talk about where we can find common ground. Because ultimately, these these issues are tough and you know when we come to the notion of alternative facts it, it is that there's great you know pseudo-archaeology thrives often from these you know to, to offer a quote from ancient aliens itself on looking at quote mainstream archaeology as an enemy and so i think this is something that we really need to talk about the, the categories the concepts the worldview that people have 
because this isn't just about facts. And this is something that I, I try to do my best to reach out and say like, hey, I'm here, I'm here to talk. I, I want to discuss these issues as much as possible. It's not always possible on social media. Sometimes I think it's best <laughs> for me to just disengage and move on with my day. And uh, it, it's, it's a tough one because this is, you know, they're called alternative facts for a reason. Uh, and we need to address them not on a fact by fact basis. We need to address it as a worldview or an epistemology mm -hmm. basis. Well, and, and to follow up uh, with, with what David said, um, you know, with this three step pig, um, it's, it's very, because um, I, my, my history with um, ancient aliens, it goes back, you know, many years. Uh, my, my brothers and my family would be watching ancient aliens. And at that point, I had, already become very interested in archaeology and it was just at that time I saw it as very annoying I was I thought oh that's that's just terrible they're just doing that for ratings and it wasn't until only recently did I see just how uh, how much of an impact it has on people's worldviews and their um, opinions on cultures and how they they look at um, how they look at these um, incredible architectural achievements and think, oh, there's no way that humans could do that. There's no way that this could be done. Um, it had to have been, you know, an otherworldly, uh, like extraterrestrial source uh, to do this. Um, and that becomes very threatening to our understanding of humans and understanding ancient humans. And so rather than ignore that discussion anymore, um, I, I really try to work to, to keep that discussion going and to kind of take it apart bit by bit and say, well, you know, the, this, this explains this and, you know, the, this is how archaeologists investigate on that. And it is very difficult because uh, people's ideologies uh, tend to take priority over fact, uh, but it is something that needs to be discussed. It's something that needs to be uh, put center stage and it's it's more crucial now than than before I think because there is now a subculture of alternative archaeology that is constantly being reinforced yeah I think at a, at a larger scale larger issue is this misconception about being open-mindedness because when I have discussions with let's say my family members or my students about uh, pseudoscience stuff, uh, alternative medicine and stuff. One of the things that I hear is that, well, just because you're not familiar with it doesn't mean that you need to dismiss it. How do you know? Maybe this whatever potion I'm taking um, is good for me or whatever, and you just don't know. So that's the misconception about the fact that we are being close-minded, where people need to realize that you can be open-minded, but your mm -hmm. open-mindedness has to come with some uh, evidence. It has to be open-mindedness should be evidence-based. And I think that's, that's what I encounter quite a lot. This just lack of understanding of what it really means to be open-minded. I th this might be a good moment too for the listeners to add some hard numbers here because certainly people try to tell me all the time that this is a small problem or a fringe issue. Uh, the reality is there's some great survey data that has been put together for several years in a row now by Chapman University. And they have a survey uh, called, Parent well, it's a subset of their larger survey, the Survey of American Fears, uh, and this has taken on a Paranormal America survey. Um, as of 2018, 
41% of Americans believe that ancient aliens are real. And that number has gone up every year for the last four years in a row since the surveys are, uh, went over to Chapman University. Uh, last In 2018, 57% of Americans believe that Atlantis or something like it is real. This is, to me, sort of an extraordinary statement. 57%. I mean, when's the last time we got 57% of Americans to agree to anything? And now we have 57% of Americans who basically think that my profession is lying to them. And that's a huge problem for my profession as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. That that is the 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 greatest crux of the situation uh, in in my experience because it's so it's so easy for you know people who who don't think uh, mm-hmm. who don't take the scientific uh, approach to to look at something like this and say oh well there has to be something more and and that's what I I found so interesting about the article is because mm-hmm. you know rather than um, focusing on these topics of, you know, oh, there's, you know, there's no way that the ancient aliens did this or, the, or you know, people did that or anything. But it focuses on, um, you know, a platform that hasn't been discussed, which is film. And we go into these films and it's always a hidden history. It's always a secret object. Um, and this is how people look at archaeology and David I'm sure that you know whenever uh you said that you're an archaeologist like 99% of the time the next question is oh like Indiana Jones there's another issue also is that um I was listening to a um study cosmologist and then and people that study the universe and they um one of the things that they say is that the light that we see is probably from millions of years ago and it takes time to reach us. Mm -hmm. And that kind of reinforces the idea that, well, uh, don't miss this, just dismiss ancient aliens because uh, um, these people that study space tell us that we see things right now that existed long before. So why should we not believe that there um, a civilization existed that we're just um mm-hmm. hearing about so it's just a, so in some ways different disciplines of science kind of work against each other and i think this is something that hiscock does a good job of bringing out in this article uh, and his other work is that the all of these movie depictions of archaeology and the the pulp fiction ones and the comic book ones that come before that have done a really good job of cultivating a notion that the past is open for stories but there, we can. Um, we are free and should be free to imagine all kinds of things happening in the past because there, there's sort of this mm-hmm. notion that well, we don't really know what happened in the past, and so why not? Why not let your your mind go wild? Well, and and another thing that he he points out is that not only is film, you know, the the perpetrator of these pseudo archaeological narratives, but also a consumer of these narratives. And you know, like the reason that these films are keep being made, and uh, you know, they they keep getting money is because they're clearly connecting uh, with the audience. And we, we know intellectually that, you know, these are films and, you know, there's no way, like, you know, when I saw Aquaman and, and uh, you know, you, you see the part of the film where, you know, there's this, this hidden world and a waterfall in the center of the earth, you're like, okay, that, that's something. Um, but it, we also, we, it starts to plant the seed of, you know, 
maybe there's something more, maybe there's something hidden, maybe there's something these, these uh, mainstream archaeologists aren't telling us, uh, which, you know, I, I still have a hard time really understanding the thought process around because every archaeologist I've ever met has been dying to share what they know. <laughs> oh, yes. The idea that I would keep quiet about something I found is actually pretty counterintuitive to what I need to do as a professional. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Because you just mentioned, uh, and it made me wonder, so there, in general, for science fiction uh, movies, there's a lot of the times a scientist who is at least advised while either writing the script or shooting the movie to make yes. it, the science at least a little bit reliable or, or related to, to uh, real-life science. And I, it makes me wonder, is there such practice when it comes to archaeological depiction of, of facts or is it not really a thing and people just write and do whatever they feel like? I, I know of some examples of films that did have archaeological consultants. I, I don't have a comprehensive list in my mind, so it certainly happens sometimes. But I know there's a huge pushback because there's a desire in this industry to make a movie that will be enjoyed and consumed by all. And so one, one example that I recall um, was that the, I believe the title of the cartoon was Prince of Egypt and the, the directors wanted camels in the movie because people think of camels in Egypt and the, the archaeologist who was, or the Egyptologist who was consulting for them kept saying, no, 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 there were no camels in Egypt at this time when you're making this film, setting this film. And the, the directors just kept pushing back, but, but the consumers want to see camels. That's what they think when they see you know, the, the modern world. Uh, and so there, there's not always necessarily there's that that fight and it's an understandable fight i think when it comes to the world of, of movie making they need to make a product that the modern public will partake in and enjoy and so there are some of these things that are are problematic uh, i think i had an interesting personal experience once um it just so happened there's the the road to el dorado cartoon about uh, that's set in the ancient maya world and i got the chance to meet one of the background animators for that film just he happened to be a roommate of my brother's so <laughs> however that works out uh, but watching that movie for me as a maya archaeologist was a real sort of head trip because the background is full of all of these different buildings from lots of different sites from lots of different time periods mm -hmm. i mean to me looking at that cartoon is, is like if we take the hunchback of notre dame and put the london tower in the background and we put you know the the coliseum from rome in the background all because it's <laughs> europe you know in the, 19, the 1800s you put those europe things in there and that's sort of what happened with this this movie the road to el dorado they just put, like, just put the ancient latin american things in there nobody will know and the, and the reality is I, what i sort of bugged me with that movie is like hey just grab one book about one maya site and just draw the buildings from that one site and boom you're done uh, but they, they took this sort of, and he told me when I talked to the animator, he's like, yeah, we just flipped through some books and found some pretty pictures and put them in the background. And there, there's this, there's a level, as we were talking about in the Twitter chat, I don't expect every movie to be 100% accurate. And I don't think that maybe they even need to be or should be. But there is some level of cultural concern that should be there. And I think particularly when we're writing about and talking about cultures that are not our own, that we need to be ex have an extra layer of care going on there because that image will be presented to people for generations to come. Well, I would say that, you know, it really does kind of uh, like, you know, discussing things like the, the film El Dorado, which, um, you know, I watched quite frequently um, when, when it first came out. Um, but I... 
I, I do kind of see this vicious cycle coming about where, um, you know, the filmmakers, they, they, when they're coming up with the, the look of the film and the setup and the backgrounds, um, they, they say, you know, well, it has to look like this because that's what people think of when they think of this culture or, or this subject. And then the audience sees that. And then not only does it reinforce their perception of, of this, of this culture, but it also uh, continues to carry on that idea um, to a younger audience or another generation. And so because of that, filmmakers afterwards have to be like, oh, well, the public, you know, sees it this way. So we have to draw it this way. We have to paint it this way. Um, and it just kind of keeps going on and on and on. I think there's a, you know, a couple of people fired back on the, the Twitter chat just saying, oh, people know they're watching a movie or they know that this isn't real. And that those are good and important points, but I think the issue is more background than foreground here. It's this idea of repetitive images of what a particular culture looks like or what a particular concept is that get repeatedly reinforced, maybe not in the foreground, but in the background that leave you with this echoing impression uh, from these pop culture sources. It just sources. kind of reverberates out. So, so I have a question mm -hmm. that maybe our social scientists here can weigh in. So we have all these different scores for movies, like from Rotten Tomatoes, from IMDb, for the parental guidance. Uh, do you think it would be interesting and it would make sense if we have a different score for scientific accuracy that people can basically make a judgment how exactly they approach a movie when they're going to watch it? Yeah, we talked about that during the chat, didn't we? Yeah, that definitely came up during the chat. I thought that was really um, kind of an interesting idea. Um, and I know that there were a couple of folks that had posted like our resources that are currently on Twitter um, that like evaluate. I think one of them was like the scientific accuracy of like horror and like sci-fi films. Um, is it Curly Haired Mafia? So, so, I mean, there are sources of people that are sort of doing those things, but I guess like the, the idea of like a Rotten Tomatoes kind of thing where it's not necessarily in depth but it's sort of like it's a one you know single numbered score and so if you were going to use it as a teaching tool say if you're a teacher and you want to sort of you know say teach about archaeology for example or you know anything else you know would that just sort of give people a sense of you know how true-ish or not is this and what do we make of that because that that single number even though I guess from my perspective you know as a as a scientist that doesn't mean a whole lot but to a member of the public you know that might actually be just a nice indicator of sort of what they could expect to get and then they can sort of go in with more of a mindset of taking it with the grain of salt or huh that's really interesting like they're this scored fairly high in terms of scientific accuracy or scientific truth and so what components of that were true versus what were fake and so you kind of generate some interest maybe on the front end rather than trying to like convince people or unconvince people of what they think after they've already seen the movie and already have developed those beliefs and so it's almost sort of like a, a way it's like a preventative measure if you will so i wonder if something like that would be effective I totally agree. Those kind of reviews should come from a point of view of, wow, have you seen the latest movie? This part was so awesome because, you know, people like to have uh, fiction in their lives. That's why they go to the movies to escape from the real world. But if you can present it in a fun way and appreciate the cinematic approaches 
and everything good about the movies. Actually, Hollywood movies can provide an opportunity, a platform for archaeologists uh, to start talking to people. Because if it wasn't for Jurassic Park, I don't think people would have so much interest, perhaps wouldn't have so much interest in uh, paleontology if it wasn't for uh, movies like the Raiders of the Lost Ark and so on. I don't, probably they wouldn't pay so much attention to archaeology. So the approach is really important. Let me continue to work on my groundwork campaign if I can. Uh, I for, to get Marvel Comics to call me uh, because they they have whispered that they want to make a new movie about uh, the Eternals, uh, and I won't fall too I won't fall too far down the well here, uh, except to say this is an old project of Jack Kirby's, uh, and it does radiate into the modern movies in some sense, and they want to make a movie just about the Eternals and. From my perspective, there's sort of two issues here. One, the Eternals are deep within the canon of the Marvel Universe at this point. There are all kinds of things that they're too interwoven into the Marvel Universe for me to stand up and say, take them out, get rid of them. But the reality is, is that the Eternals are 100% created as an homage to Eric von Donnekin's Chariots of the Gods, which is the origin of the modern ancient aliens movement. The Eternals are ancient aliens. That's literally what they're supposed to be. They're tied up into all of this stuff. And since they want to make a movie about this, I've been trying to sort of wave my flag and say, come and talk to me, please, because we can make a great movie. I know you can make, they can make great movies. I know that, but I, I like to think I, or hopefully they'll talk to somebody like me who can help them say, you know what? I understand these are woven into the fabric of your universe. How do we avoid the biggest pitfalls? How do we avoid the implicit racism to this? How do we avoid the implicit bias against humans in this whole process and still make a decent movie? Because I think that can be done. I think that can be fun. But if we just ignore and shuffle aside these more problematic issues, they will continue to fester. So if anyone from Marvel Studios is listening, drop us a message. We'll give you the contacts of David. Call me. Call me. <laughs> <laughs> So this idea of, I guess, you know, in terms of what to do about this, because here at SciComm JC, we really like the crunchy, um, tangible takeaways um, and things that our listeners can actually go out and start to really think about and actually even develop solutions around um, and use um, is, you know, this, I guess what's come out of this conversation for me is this sort of idea of pre-programming versus deprogramming um, in terms of your viewers uh, for these kinds of films. Um, and that's, you know, across, I think, you know, not just archaeology, but across all different subject areas, medicine, politics, um, all of those things that are portrayed in TV and film um, that aren't necessarily factually rooted or that aren't necessarily accurate. Um, in terms of, you know, how things actually happen and how institutions are created and how we actually do science. Um, so I guess those are kind of my thoughts for now um, in terms of just leaving people with food for thought is what do we do about either pre-programming people to sort of absorb the information that we want them to absorb or sort of take things with a grain of salt versus trying to deprogram them once they've already kind of bought into whatever the view was portrayed um, in the movie or film or um, or TV show. And so, you know, again, and what the inherent challenges are with that, like, how do you do that? So those are just my food for thoughts for now. <laughs> um, well, for me, really, um, my, my, my takeaway was, you know, the movies are 
are a great way to initiate a conversation about, you know, a scientific subject um, because films are engaging and they're discussed extensively, um, especially when they are inaccurate. Um, and, uh, you know, because it, it just allows so much opportunity um, for a discussion to be made. And um, I've seen, uh, you know, a lot of science communicators take that as a chance to uh, to discuss the subject that is explored in the film and say, you know, yeah, that was a good film, but, um, and that that's that's really uh, my, my takeaway from my experience um, as, you know, a, a, as a film buff and, you know, an amateur archeologist. <laughs> yeah, there was a, a comment made uh, on Twitter that I found really fascinating about the most recent Laura Croft movie which of course came out after Hiscock's movie, uh, excuse me, after Hiscock's article, and that actually in the most recent Mark Croft, the, it turned out to be a, a, a virus that was the real villain and the real problem. Uh, yet, so through the whole film, it was set up as magic or mystery, and the, the ancient world is this, this supernatural place as typically, uh, it has been presented in film. And yet at the very end, the Laura Croft film, she comes out and realizes, no, this is not magic. This is not mystery. This is science. This is something we can deal with and grapple with. And so I guess I'm, I'm hoping maybe Laura is our, our new banner waver and that she might be able to step us forward into a different world for archaeology and film. Sherry, I have a question for you. So now that we discuss the Twitter chat, I think you have something to tell us about our State Your Mission Challenge. Yes. I do. So once again, for the second year in a row, and we're planning on doing this every year. Um, so we hosted our State Your Mission Challenge, uh, where we invite the scientific community to share their SciComm mission statement, because we are uh, really a big advocate of starting uh, with a plan and understanding what your goals are, who your audience is, and based on the poll that we took, um, and also our own observations, um, it's clear that the SciComm and scientific community, to a large part, um, they don't do this. They don't sit down and write mm -hmm. a mission statement and really think about uh, exactly how they want to approach SciComm. So that's why we hosted it last year. We had amazing submissions and this year it was also amazing we had uh, close to 18 submissions which was fantastic and we've already uh, voted on them and we have a tie for the first place which is tum, tum, tum. just all amazing <laughs> um so we're going to be um announcing the winners on february 15th and for the first time I think we're gonna have, we're gonna give two first place prizes, which is a pretty, pretty, um, <laughs> um, how do I say it, loaded prize, where the, the winner gets a book and then uh, they also get uh, help from our members but for public speaking and um, learning how to better tech use social media from a technical point of view, and um, also knowing how to approach people, to mobilize people uh, for citizen engagement. So, um, and so on and so forth. They're also going to get a certificate <laughs> of a Nerd of Trust certificate with Maria. What does the Nerd of Trust actually mean, Sherry? 
A nerd of trust is someone who approaches their communities as a source of a trusted, um, as a trusted source of knowledge, because we all feel that uh, one of the most important factors for success in science communication is having the person you're communicating with to trust you. And mm -hmm. I think this is best done within the medium of smaller, more intimate communities. Um, that's why one of the first Twitter chat actually we did was about going and using Facebook because most of the scientific communities on Twitter, but where scientists, probably most of them have their family and friend communities on Facebook, which is more intimate um, and there's less trolls because they don't, you know, you don't have to allow them into your circle. Um, so that's where it started and we really advocate um, taking, positioning your psychom uh, in such a way that you're coming from a place of trust. So if, say, someone were, you know, interested in learning more about, you know, the scientific accuracy in movies, they would seek out somebody that has that nerd of trust badge, for example, yes. from JC, and ask that person about their questions and about how accurate the science is, not just popping into some sort of random Reddit feed and, and exactly. getting information there. <laughs> exactly. That's very, very important. So we're announcing the winners on the 15th of February, a day after Valentine's Day. And on the subject of announcements, our next Twitter chat and the podcast for it will be in March. And they will be hosted by Maria, who is actually not today here. So she decided that she will take full speed ahead in March and do the Twitter chat and be our main uh, host for the podcast. And uh, she will be discussing a very interesting publication that actually looks uh, at the role of the moral foundation theory in parents' decision to vaccinate or not their children. Uh, and the date of this chat so far uh, is set to be the 12th of March at 6 p.m. Uh, uh, Pacific Standard Time. So take out your converters and make sure you're on time for the Twitter chat because this will be a very interesting one as well. Talk about the nerd of trust. David, where can our listeners and Twitter followers can contact you so when they have questions about archaeology in movies, uh, they can ask you questions? Absolutely. I am deeply, profoundly, uh, fundamentally honored by the idea of being a nerd of trust. Um, folks can look, look out for me and find me on Twitter at DSA Archaeology. Uh, I also have a Facebook page under the same name, DSA Archaeology. Uh, so please, 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 I, I like talking about these things. Uh, if you've got an ancient aliens question, if you've got an Atlantis question, if you've got any such things, seek me out. I like talking about this. Thank you very much. And thank you for taking the time to join us. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I greatly, I really, really uh, appreciate it. And I hope to, to keep, you know, keep doing the psychom. I love what you're doing. Thank I love you very much, this. David. <laughs> Well, folks, this was all that we had time for today. Thank you very much to every one of our wonderful hosts, the guests and the standard hosts that we have here, the wonderful ladies of the SciComm JC uh, team. Uh, make sure to follow us on uh, SciComm underscore JC in order to be able to participate in our Twitter chats and to have information on when our next uh, episodes of the podcast are coming out and all sorts of various interesting information. You can also read recaps uh, of the 
the Twitter chats and the uh, podcasts on our website, www.psychomjc.org, where you can also leave comments and get in touch with each one of us on uh, different topics that you might be interested in. We all have our own um, specialties, so whatever you need help with, you can always uh, leave us a message and we'll try to get back to you as fast as possible. Uh, on the website, you can also subscribe to our newsletter to receive all the updates for upcoming events, Twitter chats, podcast releases, summary of the interesting uh, psychomy topics that we cover in various events. And again, that's www.psychomjc.org. Uh, Psychom JC is sponsored by Captive Touch, which is a company offering consulting and training for strategic science communication. It is recorded by the Psychom JC team. It's produced and edited by me, Nevena Christozova, and our music is compo composed by Musical Cocktail from Audio Jungle. Thank you to all of you and the, the wonderful listeners for joining us for the sixth episode of the Psychom JC podcast. If you have liked it, Make sure that you share it with your friends and family. It's important for them to know where they can find information that they can trust and whom to contact. And until next time, stay nerdy.